In 2015, I was in a random meeting with the city council president's team, and he said, isn't there something we can do with energy and jobs? And I said, of course there is, and took nights and weekends from work and sort of put together a proposal for the Philadelphia Energy Campaign. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deborah Channel, and I want to welcome you back to Smart Energy Voices. If you've been enjoying our podcast, I hope you can take a couple of minutes to give us a review on iTunes, you know, with that five-star rating that we hope we deserved, and uh, we really appreciate that. Today, we're joined by Emily Shapira. She's president and CEO of the Philadelphia Energy Authority. Emily's been a friend and guide to Smart Energy Decisions for many years now. And she's also a recent winner of our DEI Impact Award. We're happy to welcome Emily to the podcast to talk about all of this and more. Emily, welcome to Smart Energy Voices. It's really a pleasure to have you here. And I want to jump right in. Why don't you tell us about the Philadelphia Energy Authority? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Deborah. The Philadelphia Energy Authority is a quasi-governmental entity here in Philly focused on building a robust and equitable clean energy economy. We're able to do some things that the city can't do themselves. So we hold long-term contracts on their behalf. We issue sustainability bonds on behalf of the city. And we develop programs and projects that really drive our market here. You know, Historically, Philly's been a bit of an oil and gas town. We had for 150 years the largest oil refinery on the East Coast. And we own the, the largest municipally owned gas utility in the country. So we have some interesting dynamics, and as the opportunities have increased around clean energy, it's really fallen on us to make sure that we're doing the things that help us to create an economy in clean energy that is, you know, touches the labor markets that have been untouched in Philadelphia and really provides sort of excellent, highly skilled labor to the new companies that are coming here, but also creates the market conditions that make it possible for clean energy companies to locate here and to do work here. So much to unpack in what you just said, and we're going to try to get to a lot of it. <laughs> but let's talk about you for a minute. What? How did you get to your position as president and CEO? What's your background? Great question. So I started my career running a consumer heating oil cooperative that was owned by a nonprofit. And it was sort of a random job right out of college. And I learned more than I ever wanted to learn about heating oil, but also you know, all day long, all winter long. My voicemail would just fill up over and over and over again with people whose teeth I could literally hear chattering in their own homes. And you know, people who are out of heating oil don't have the opportunity to get consumer protections. When you're out, you're out and you have no heat anymore. If you don't have the money to pay for it, you're not going to have any heat. And so people were doing all kinds of unsafe things like heating their homes with their ovens or propane space heaters inside the house. And you know, that led to fires. I mean, it's really just an incredible cycle. And what I learned is that a lot of the reason why folks were spending so much money on heating oil was because their homes were in not great condition. A lot of them had sort of, you know, very leaky windows, holes in the roof, 
barely functioning, super old heating systems. And I've been looking for a solution to that ever since. And so for the last sort of, you know, the 15 years that followed, I went and got an MBA at Wharton, really sort of felt like I didn't know how to do the things I needed to do to scale up. And so Wharton was a great place to learn the tricks of the trade. And then I went into corporate sustainability for many years. I worked for Wharton, actually, starting their sustainability program. I worked with Verizon and Intel on their sustainability work, and then was the COO of a lighting company that did lighting energy efficiency. And at the time, I had gotten asked to join the board of the Philadelphia Energy Authority because of my work in low-income energy advocacy from the heating oil days. And I joined the board in 2011. And in 2015, I was in a random meeting with the city council president's team. And he said, isn't there something we can do with energy and jobs? And I said, of course there is, and took nights and weekends from work and sort of put together a proposal for the Philadelphia Energy Campaign. It's a billion-dollar investment over 10 years to create 10,000 jobs in clean energy focused on city building, schools, affordable housing, and the commercial and industrial sector as well. I was able to convince the council president of it and asked for a bunch of unreasonable things that I didn't think he would give us, and he did. And so I left my job and came to work for the Energy Authority. And that was about, oh man, seven, eight years ago. So from a really random first job, you built a career. Yeah, totally. A very cohesive one. So interesting. Now, you mentioned labor a couple of times, and you just mentioned the job market. When we first met, I think that was in 2018, when we were children, I remember you saying you never talk about renewables and energy efficiency without talking about jobs in Philadelphia. And tell us more about that strategy and uh, how it's working for PEA. Sure. You know, in 2016 in Philadelphia, at the time that we were launching the energy campaign, the thing that was really driving the political moment was economic development and jobs. Our unemployment rate in Philadelphia among young Black men is typically two to three times the citywide average. And so we have this sort of legacy of redlining and racism that really cannot just go away. It has to be addressed specifically. And so as we talk about jobs, we're talking about it in an environment where there's a labor shortage, which I always find incredible, you know, that we could have both very high unemployment rates in specific populations and then also a labor shortage in certain industries. And so we really set out to say, not only will we provide skilled labor here, but we will do it from the most marginalized communities and make sure that folks have a chance to participate in this economy. And really, you know, that's self-interested in so many ways, right? And I'm not afraid to say that the industry needs labor and you know, they can have it from anywhere. And if we are not intentional about including marginalized communities in the growth of this industry, the same people will win over and over and over again. And we simply further entrench the systems that reinforce those sort of institutionalized discrimination and racism. And, and that legacy of redlining in Philadelphia will just continue. So I think we don't move forward unless we all move forward and this has been a real competitive advantage for us to have so many young people that are really interested in this space, you know, that just as much as anybody else want jobs that are meaningful, that, you know, fight climate change, that, you know, do all the things that are needed in this economy. And, you know, we just need to give them the opportunity. So workforce development has been a huge component of our work. And honestly, it gives us a lot of political license. We've supported over $800 million in projects so far. We're seven years into the energy campaign now. And we've created about 7,000 jobs. 
So we're really proud of that. I think it's it's worked fantastically. That is very impressive, I have to say. And you have a number of training programs, right, that PA does? That's right. We were really excited to bring Secretary Granholm and our Senator Bob Casey to Philly last year to come tour our training program facilities at Frankfurt High School, which is a three-year vocational training program for young people. And then we also run programs for young adults, folks that have had some interaction with the justice system through PowerCore, PHL, and through the energy coordinating agency here. So we're training in solar, electrical, weatherization, green residential construction. And and we do that in particular, that one, because we run a program called Built to Last that focuses on single family, low income homes. And we're sort of braiding and blending funding streams from all sorts of different kinds of programs, city, state, federal, utility, hospital programs, nonprofit programs, everything we could find, health department. And we put all that together and then sort of fill in the gaps to make sure people end up with sort of safe, healthy, long-term, affordable, resilient home. So long story short there, most of that work is done by small contractors that tend to be diverse. It's not really the type of work that large union firms like to take on. And so we need employees for those small companies. And we really had to tailor a training program specifically to the types of things that they need. You do have to be a bit more of a jack of all trades in that situation. So that's been a wonderful program. And we've been excited to be able to place our students out of the GRIT program. It's the Green Retrofit Immersive Training Program into direct employment with the contractors that work on that program. What's the relationship like? You mentioned Jennifer Granholm coming to visit and others. What's your relationship with the federal government on that level? We get a, a federal funding, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act now in full swing, I think we've really seen the opportunities that are coming with that. And so we've worked very hard to try to bring as much federal funding as possible to Philadelphia. Truly, Philadelphia is a place where if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. We don't have a particularly favorable set of legislative or regulatory rules. We do not have a lot of funding. So it's not a sort of New York or California situation where, you know, they're able to sort of like throw state budget at it, which we're very jealous of. And congratulations to those folks. It's incredible. (laughs) Not being critical at all. But, you know, in Pennsylvania, we've got a really entrenched, you know, sort of half Republican, half Democrat legislature. It's very tough to get things done. We have a supportive Democratic governor, but I think he struggles to get things done sometimes. So We are really trying to leverage every dime of federal funding we can. We have a number of federal grants in the works. We're leading in partnership with the city's Office of Sustainability, the Inflation Reduction Act strategy for the city of Philadelphia. We've applied for over $2 billion in grants so far. You know, we want a hydrogen hub, which will be interesting. We continue to sort of receive some funding. So we work really closely with our congressional delegation, and we try to stay in close communication with the Department of Energy. We've received a number of DOE grants over the years. So when I think Secretary Granholm was looking for good examples of you know the type of programs that they like to fund and that they are trying to promote and talk about all over the country, Philly was a really good opportunity for her. Right. A good example of what can be done, hopefully to be adopted by other cities. Yeah, exactly. We had a really just wonderful visit with her too. She came to our training lab, as I said, at at Frankfurt High School, met our students. They got to do a demo for her. She came to the home of one of the recipients of our Built to Last program. And I just remember this wonderful moment of our homeowner saying to Secretary Granholm, 
oh, come outside. I have to show you my solar. And she goes outside and she shows her her solar shutoff switch and then also her compressor from her heat pump that we installed. And, you know, she and Jennifer Granholm are just standing outside in her alleyway kind of giggling about the technology. It was really just the sweetest thing. And then we went over to Yards Brewery where we installed a 740 kilowatt solar array on the roof. And Secretary Granholm and Senator Casey climbed all the way up to the roof with the guys who had helped to install that project, got a chance to talk to them and see the beautiful views of that array in the city. So it was a really wonderful visit. Wow, definitely boots on the ground, seeing the reality of what these programs can do. That's so impressive. Thank you. I love that. All right, so you've talked about jobs and labor as a priority. What other priorities do you have and what are you trying to accomplish? Thank you. That's a great question. (laughs) So a couple of things. One, we're trying to bring as much Inflation Reduction Act funding to Philly as possible. I think there's probably $5 billion in grants and rebates and tax credits that the city should be able to leverage. So we are really gearing up across all of the IRA opportunities to make sure that we're providing technical assistance where it's needed in the marketplace, market education, that we're finding the right organizations to apply to every single funding opportunity, whether that's us or someone else. We're putting together the right coalitions to make our applications as compelling as possible. We're working with New Jersey and other folks to make sure that you know, regionally, we're competitive. So that's really the big priority at the moment. It's requiring us to scale up our operations and our sort of capacity on lots of things. So we've been working with philanthropy a lot. We have a wonderful partner in the William Penn Foundation who has helped us really be flexible and nimble as all of this has come out. But we continue to also push the energy campaign as the hydrogen hub funding was awarded. We're supporting our water department who makes biogas and our gas utility, uh, Philadelphia Gas Works, to figure out the future of all of that regional energy system that incorporates hydrogen. And, you know, we continue to operate our core programs, Solarize Philly, which hopefully will receive funding from the federal Solar for All grants to help our green bank expand with the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund funding that's out there. Fingers crossed on all of those. And then really working with industry to make sure that they both understand the opportunity here and that we're creating, as I said earlier, the market conditions that make it appealing for folks to come to Philadelphia. So it's not just, you know, sort of applying for grants and running programs. It's truly working with the industry to figure out what do they need in order for this to be a more appealing market. And in some cases, that's things like permitting, it's interconnection. So we work with our utility, Pico, an awful lot. And sometimes it's just we need to see more opportunities. And so we're driving large projects through the city and the school district. We've done about $250 million of school district energy efficiency work so far. We have a lot more to do there. And with the city, we are in the process of replacing every single streetlight citywide. That's about 10% of our carbon footprint right there. And then we are about to release additional RFPs around solar procurement, other renewables procurement. And we have one out right now focused on energy efficiency for 14 city buildings. No, so And when do you sleep? No, no, no. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, we've grown a lot. It is. And we're really lucky to have a supportive political environment and, you know, really lucky to just be in a situation where we have a fantastic board and can press through no matter what the politics are. We just got a new mayor. We just got a new city council president. So 
you know, a lot has changed in Philadelphia lately, but we're lucky to have the partnerships that we do and can keep things moving forward. Yeah, partnerships are, you know, I know it's, I did some looking on your website and it's listed as a core value. And I feel like your background, starting in residential and then working with a lot of corporations, you're uniquely placed to push these partnerships through. How are those created and structured? There are a couple of different structures that we use here. So I'll give a couple of examples. We have a 70 megawatt solar array out by Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's called Adams Solar. That powers about 25% of the city's electricity. It's just coming online now. It's been a, a long road on that project, but it's finally about to deliver power. And in that case, you know, we I think it really is an interesting business relationship. We are the off-taker on behalf of the city. We have an intergovernmental agreement with the city and then a PPA with the provider. And it didn't need to be as public-private partnership as you might imagine. It was pretty straightforward. We were able to include things in that contract that I just love and I know are not typical of a corporate PPA. We included a mid-range prevailing wage. We required them to use prevailing wage on this project, but it's a wage that's between Adams County and Philadelphia County. So you're creating opportunities for Philadelphia businesses to participate. It's only about two and a half hours away. And then we also negotiated some workforce boosts, I think, to that project. So Energex, who's the developer of that project, hired a handful of folks from our training program to work on that project as sort of an internship or an extended interview with their contractors. So that was really an incredible experience for them to go and live out in Gettysburg and you know, be a part of that big project. So that's one kind of structure. We also do a lot of public-private stuff. So all of our energy efficiency projects are really utilizing the Pennsylvania Guaranteed Energy Savings Act. So they're all energy performance contracts. We hold those long-term contracts on behalf of the city as well. And we've done some really incredible projects that way. We did a, it was about a $12 million project at the Philadelphia Museum of Art which I just love this project so much because it's such an iconic historical building. And I think a lot of folks are nervous to do that type of work in a building like that, particularly in a cultural institution. And we were really able to demonstrate that even with a, the super high cost of art handling and you know needing to move the art out of the way for any construction work that you do, that you can still get substantive energy efficiency and water conservation out of those types of projects. And we got calls from cultural institutions all over the country saying, how did you guys do that? So I'm really excited about that one. I was lucky enough to get a tour of part of that project a number of years ago. It was one of my favorite things because I was so impressed with the energy, with the efficiency programs and the equipment that they were showing us. And then we walked through and I'm like, okay, there's a masterpiece on the wall over there. All right. But look at this box with the energy efficiency numbers on it. Okay. But there's a masterpiece over there. It was whiplash, but all of it was a great job on both fronts, I have to say. I forgot that we took you on a tour of that. I love that because that building was such a huge lift and we did it at the same time as that major Frank Gehry renovation. And so when all is said and done, people are coming in to see this incredibly beautiful new museum. And I'm like, take a look at the digital controls on the radiators. (laughs) (laughs) Both of them impressive, both works of art, we'll say. (laughs) Now, that was great. I remember that project very well. All right. I want to move back to the topic of diversity and equity, because I know that's a big push for PEA. And this will be an odd thing to say on a podcast, but I want to make Emily blush a little bit. I'll let you know if she does. You were presented, you weren't there to accept in person, but in absentia, you were presented with a special DEI impact award. 
by Smart Energy Decisions last September. And the category of the award was Catalyst for Change. And when I presented the award, I said that what Emily really worked to change was smart energy decisions. And I want to explain that a little bit. In 2019, we were planning our Accelerate Philly event, and you were helping us, guiding us with some of the content. And you said you really have to do something about diversity and energy. You've got to make a presentation. You've got to get speakers. And that was a new topic for us. And we were a little reluctant, and we didn't know how to get our feet wet and how to start. And you don't take no for an answer. And you, <laughs> you really pushed us in a really good way and encouraged us. And that led to the development of our Inspiring Diversity and Energy series, which we've continued on a number of fronts at our events, on podcasts and during COVID, on some online projects that we did. So one of the things I noted was that these conversations are really hard to have. These are really hard initiatives to get started. So in your experience, What's the best way for people to approach this? How do you get started with issues of diversity and equity? And how do you make those changes in your own organization? Yeah, thanks for that, Deborah. I, you know, I am really proud of the work we've done with SED and love what you guys are doing with those conferences. I think it's made all the difference. We went from having a room full of white people to having a much more diverse room. And it's not that there are not diverse people in the energy business. It's that, you know, they just aren't often privy to the same room. So congratulations on all of the progress you guys have made there. You know, I take literally no credit for this, even though I appreciate you giving me some. But like, you know, the industry has changed and you guys have changed right with it. And I'm really proud of that. The place to start is whatever is material for your firm. And I, when I say that to people, people are like, what does that even mean? DEI or diversity and equity and inclusion, which you should say the words out loud so that you know what it means and what the purpose is. It's not a buzzword. It's not performative. If you're thinking you're going to do something performative, forget about it. Like it doesn't have value to do that. What has value is to look at your own company and to say, okay, where are we missing the boat on diversity first, right? Like, do we have a company that represents the people both that we serve, the people that we live around, that we're you know, located around, and are we tapping the best parts of the workforce and making sure that we have sort of a diversity of ideas and attitudes and ways of working and all of that, because that's what benefits you as a company, right? It's not just like a nice thing to have. So that's the first thing. Equity, same thing. Are we reinforcing, and I hate to say it this way, but I'm just going to say it, systems of oppression which ultimately, you know, I think is a hard thing for a company to talk about. That's not how we talk about anybody's work. But, you know, if you really think, take a minute and think about it and say, what are we doing that actually, you know, lifts up the communities that we serve? And are we serving everybody? And if we're not, do we want to? And if you do, and in some cases you will, in some cases you won't, especially for B2B situations, then forget it. But I think, you know, it's all up to us to sort of think about how what we do affects equity. And equity is not, you know, everybody gets the same thing. It's everybody gets the same sort of opportunity. And for some folks, you got to work harder to give them that. And for other people, you don't. So, and then the last thing is just inclusion. You know, when you have people of color in particular and women in your organization, are you creating an environment where they feel welcome and they feel like they belong and they feel comfortable? Or is it still kind of the boys club and you're just slotting people into it. So I think those are the places to start. I mean, it's wonderful that people have tried all of these very flashy initiatives. And I think a lot of folks have spent more money sort of advertising the DEI work than actually doing it. And so 
my rule of thumb is if it's performative, I don't do it. The other thing I'll say is look at your own hiring practices. If you don't have the candidate pool that is diverse, you're not going to get diverse hires. So that's the first step. And I think that is really tough for HR folks to change the way they recruit. But you know, I recently was talking to a really big energy services company at the global level, and they were sort of explaining how much money they're spending on recruitment at certain colleges across the country. I'm like, have you ever been to an HBCU? They're like, no, actually, that's a great question. I'm like, well, you're spending loads of money on this. Like, it's not like there's no budget for it. It's truly just a norm that needs to be reviewed and give it a try somewhere else. I think people get afraid of it too. And I'll just say one other thing, Deborah. I've heard from a couple of people, particularly in manufacturing, where you've got a lot of facilities in red states or places that are sort of less excited to embrace sort of the language of DEI. And I would really encourage people to not stress about the language. Feel free to do the language that works for your company. The more important thing is the intentionality around the practice. And so as long as you're doing that, I would not worry about pushback or the analysts or any of those things. Like, Do the things that are actually right for your business. And when you're really being introspective and thoughtful, DEI is really critical. And as someone who has tripped over her words a number of times in this area, that is great advice. And I have to say the aha moment, I just wrote this down. You know, you hear when diverse candidates go in for a job, you may have to work harder than average, but it's the companies, it's the organizations doing the hiring. They have to work harder too. And that, I just, I wrote that down and underlined it. So that might be the t-shirt moment. Yeah. And, you know, people are used to recruiting through their own networks. And as a white woman, I feel very comfortable saying that, you know, I think white people tend to have overwhelmingly white networks, even if you're thoughtful and out there, you have to make, I think, an extra effort to expand your network. You know, one of the organizations I love to work with is ABE, the American Association of Blacks in Energy. And I'm not a Black person, but I show up to all of these events and, you know, I am welcomed there and supported there and have found that to be one of the most fantastic networks of extremely highly skilled talent that I've been a part of professionally. So, you know, I would just encourage folks to stretch outside their comfort zones a little bit and not be afraid to be in a room that they haven't been in before and try something different. Well, that's great advice. And again, it takes work. It takes working harder, but you've given us some good direction here. We could talk all day, except we can't talk all day. So I want to close out by just asking what's next for you and for Philadelphia Energy Authority? Yeah, thank you. This has been a really fun conversation. I think what's next for us is to really focus on the federal funding, working to make that not a boom and bust like we saw with ERA, working to figure out how we can do as much clean energy work as humanly possible before this funding goes away, and really then take that progress to our state capital, Harrisburg, and show them that clean energy is for everyone. And so creating policies and regulatory rulings that support the development of clean energy is what needs to happen. And that should be something that everybody agrees on. So we've got a lot of political work ahead of us and a ton of work to do to keep building Philly as a place that clean energy is thriving and where you know we are figuring out that transition to a decarbonized world and doing it in a way that supports local jobs, supports the local economy, and creates that equitable marketplace that really lifts everybody up. So that's all we are working on. Yeah, that's all. 
Well, Emily, it is always a pleasure talking to you. And I always leave our conversations inspired and a little bit scared because there's so much to do. But it's really good knowing that you're out there doing the hard work and getting things done. So congratulations and best of luck going forward. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Deborah. To all of our listeners, I want to thank you for engaging with our content and being part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. And to learn about how you can become part of our next event, visit our website at smartenergydecisions.com. We're really excited about being able to share these conversations with the leaders of our energy transition as part of the podcast and also on our website and our events. And it's all in the interest of helping you make those smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.